Welcome to the Informing Choices Minipod. The recent BBC Ideas video, How Safe Is It to Hack the Aging Process, is an interesting indication that the notion of managing, delaying or even stopping the aging process is becoming mainstream. The idea of immortality has been a dream of, for many people for as long as humanity has existed. But what is the reality of the anti-aging approaches and technologies? And are we really on the cusp of being able to cure aging. To talk about the future of aging, I'm delighted to welcome futurist, speaker, analyst, and commentator, David Wood to the, to the podcast. David, thank you for joining me. Tell us a little bit about your background and your interest in the aging issue. It's great to be here, Steve. My background is 25 years in the mobile computing and smartphone industry when I witnessed a great deal of change on a trajectory which was slow and disappointing before it became fast and furious. It's my perception that much the same course is going to apply to many of the other technologies that have been bubbling under for quite some time, but which are likely to accelerate rather dramatically in the next couple of decades. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I think I'd certainly um, agree with that uh, acceleration and that uh, kind of slow, slow, all of a sudden exponential. So if we think a bit about uh, biohacking and the aging process, how soon might biohacking to slow the aging process, do you think, become mainstream? To an extent, a version of it is already mainstream through the widespread industry of vitamins and uh, dietary supplements. It's a huge industry, as you can tell by, if you remember, we used to walk down high streets and see various shops that used to sell these. Uh, what's changing is that there's more evidence behind some of this. And there's also insight that a certain way of eating, namely intermittent fasting, can have a big impact on our longevity. This is covered, for example, in the book came out about 12 months ago by James Clement, The Switch, in which he summarizes data analysis from communities all around the world where people typically live maybe up to 10 years longer in a state of good health. And the summary of all these diets is periodic times of eating less. And you can do this uh, possibly by just eating normally two or three days a week and eating much less the other four or five days a week, which is something I try personally. So there's much uh, happening. And there are many signs of uh, things that will make this interest grow pretty quick, pretty soon. I suppose to a large extent, the fact that uh, the life expectancy has increased over a number of years as evidence of hacking going on at some level for many, many years, isn't it? It's true that life expectancy has shot up remarkably over the last 250 years. For much of that time, every year that somebody was alive, their life expectancy increased by about three months. As has happened, things have slowed down in the last 20 years. The rate of increase of life expectancy these days is more like two months for every year that we live. And in some parts of the world, it's actually gone negative due to the opioid crisis, due to deaths of depression, which includes suicide and alcoholism. So it's not going to go on automatically. There's no firm uh, clock that's driving this progress inevitably. But there are things which I think are going to push that up again. And we can have a new wave of growth. After all, technology doesn't uh, go on a smooth exponential curve, despite what sometimes we might like to tell people. It comes in a series of S-curves and sigmoids in which there's a growth and then a slowdown. And 
for the next period of growth, you need to move to different paradigms or different waves. But there are new waves coming. One of the things that's going to move this forward is a trial of a, a drug called metformin, which is commonly used by diabetics. And it turned out, people noticed unexpectedly, the diabetics who were on metformin tended to live longer even than people who didn't have uh, diabetics. Recently in China, there's some evidence indeed that people who are on metformin had uh, less serious uh, bouts of COVID, uh, which is uh, interesting. So normally you'd think that somebody who's diabetic, possibly a little bit obese, might be more likely to die. Well, metformin seems to have broader protective capabilities. There's a trial that's due to take place uh, with new funding becoming available within the next few months, I understand. Significant new funding by a new foundation that's about to be set up, hasn't been announced yet which will allow this trial to take place. And once people see that there are drugs which can uh, provably extend on average healthy life by a number of years, then more and more people are gonna say, let's investigate further. Uh, more funding is an indication that more people believe that um, the process of aging could be slowed down, not just necessarily for reasons of therapeutics, but also as perhaps a choice that we might want to make. Exactly so. There is a growing number of longevity funds of various sorts. Uh, an example in Britain is the Juvenescence Fund, which is headed by multimillionaire investor Jim Mellon, who has an admirable track record at picking areas of technology that are going to become significant. And what these funds do, they take away some of the difficult choices that individual investors would face on picking which startups uh, deserve the most uh, attention. Mm. These funds uh, spread individual investors' uh, money across a whole portfolio. But the argument is that there is sufficient evidence that a number of these small startups are likely to see significant uh, impact. And so there will be commercial returns. There will also be, of course, humanitarian returns. Mm. And very importantly, there'll be broad economic benefits for the whole of the economy. This is known as the longevity dividend. Sometimes the fear is if people live longer, they're going to be consuming more healthcare resources. Well, in fact, if this works properly, it'll be the opposite. There's already evidence, in fact, that people who live and die until in their 90s or 100s, they often consume less healthcare resources in their whole life than people who die younger in their 70s or 60s. And indeed, they, people experience much greater health. And as a result, then, if we can learn what's happening in these super ages and apply it more broadly, that will cost some money, but that will be money very well spent. It's like a stitch in time saves nine. You know, we will end up having uh, many fewer people uh, having ex expensive uh, drains on the health service and many more people who remain vibrant contributors to the economy and to society much longer. They will also avoid putting the rather tough pressures on family members to take care of elderly uh, uh, family members. Of course, mm -hmm. we love taking care of our elderly family members, but it may take us out of being fully productive. Well, all of that can be dialed down if there is more preventative uh, treatments available earlier, which is the vision of many of these startups. It's, it's always struck me that one of the things we've got pretty good at as a society through um, using pharmaceuticals is keeping people alive for longer 
the next step that you seem to be describing there was actually allowing people to live longer and be more active and productive. And those are the things that will also help benefit the economy in terms of the you know longevity. Absolutely. And so the vision is many more years of healthy life, life that people would describe as being in a state of good or very good health. And you can actually measure this. And alas, for about the last 10 or 12 years of somebody's life, they will typically say their life is no longer good or very good. They might say it's fair or poor. And this has been measured. And the view from many animal experiments is that there are treatments which will not only make some of these test species, including mice, uh, including flies, but also including some larger animals like dogs, is they will not only live longer, but they will be full of life for many more years. So we've spoken a couple of times and touched on technology. So, so what are the main technological innovations that we might see? The first one I'd like to mention is something called biomarkers of aging. This sounds a bit uh, abstruse, but what it is, similar to the way we often can weigh ourselves every morning, or we can measure our blood pressure, we can also measure our cholesterol, that gives us some indication as to our state of health. But the biomarkers of aging will be ways of indicating roughly what our equivalent biological age is. So as a result of this, I may find out what well, my chronological age is, 62 say but it might tell me that my biological age is oops 72 and that will suddenly alert me to the fact that something needs to change but more importantly after i've taken perhaps metformin or some of the other treatments i might mention after i've done that for a few months and i would repeat the experiment i would see my biological age having coming down hopefully from 72 to say 65 and that's the vision of how the field can accelerate in terms of actual treatments the fascinating thing is that there are so many of them and it will take a while to do any proper justice to it, but I'll just pick out a few. There are possibilities of hacking our biome. Our biome is all the little bacteria that live inside our gut, on our skin and elsewhere in our body. In terms of actual numbers of cells, there may be as many cells in our biome as are actually from us, although they are much smaller cells on average, so most of us by weight are us, but we do coexist with huge numbers of these small creatures, and these can be adjusted by various uh, interventions. And there is the possibility also to rejuvenate our blood. I'm not just talking about the kind of science fiction idea of having blood transfusions from young people, that doesn't seem to work actually, but there are other ways in which our blood can be rejuvenated. Uh, it's not fully understood yet exactly how this happens, but this seems to be a real possibility. There are mechanisms to regenerate our thymus, which is an organ that is associated with how many T cells we have in our immune system. As we get older, our thymuses tend to shrink and shrivel away to almost nothing. But there was an experiment reported in Nature last year, maybe the year before, in which people were given treatment to grow their thymus and then by a number of biomarkers of aging, they actually were maybe 10 years younger uh, by an account. And so there's lots more to talk about, but I would encourage your listeners to look online at things like Undoing Aging or SENS Research Foundation or lifespan.io, where they keep track of what is a growing flood of uh, new people and new companies, new treatments.
and are there challenges do you think in how society might consider almost a tension between the therapeutic benefits benefits of these technologies and perhaps the cosmetic use of them so you know for example the rich might be able to live to 180 and the poor continue to die at, at around 80. Well there are serious political questions here and I don't think we should uh, belittle these questions Sometimes uh, goods and services start off expensive and by the innovations of free market competition, they become much more affordable over time. That has happened, for example, with many items of consumer electronics, including the industry I know and love very well, smartphones. But some uh, medical treatments have remained expensive. The cost of treatment of diabetes, of course, metformin itself is very cheap because it's uh, the one I mentioned earlier, it's beyond patent, but the cost of various types of insulin is still very expensive. And it's by no means straightforward to ensure that all these goods will uh, be driven down in price as quickly as we would like. And that's where politics must come in and just steer the market. As is happening now, as we speak, there is a lot of political influence over the development and testing and deployment of vaccines against the COVID. And that's as it should be. We need to find a way to get the best out of a competitive free market, but also to steer the market in ways in which the market itself might not accelerate. After all, most uh, big pharma companies weren't that interested in developing vaccines beforehand because I mean, vaccines are only applied once or twice. Maybe occasionally they might be top up every few years, not like expensive drugs, which can be a recurring source of large revenues. So we do need sometimes to steer the market to ensure that the benefits are for, ev for everyone. But with the case of vaccines, more people are realizing, actually, we need to ensure that these vaccines are available for everyone. If we just uh, grab them for our country, it's actually not going to be a good outcome because as the virus remains alive and flourishing in other parts of the world, what does it do? It mutates, it develops new variants, which may actually no longer be vulnerable to the vaccines. So if we are serious about dealing with COVID and other pandemics, we have to ensure in a self-enlightened way that the vaccines are spread widely as possible. And in the same way, we need to ensure, in a self-enlightened way, as well as from a more altruistic motivation, we need to ensure that these treatments come down in price as quickly as possible so that we have a sustainable superabundance of health for all, not a terrible inequality, which will have all kinds of psychic as well as physical bad consequences. I mean, given the benefits, some of the benefits that you've outlaid of uh, the use of some of these technologies to delay aging and, and give people healthier, more productive later lives, do you potentially see that perhaps a more collaborative approach between private enterprise, so the pharmaceutical companies and government could be applied at some point in the future to managing aging in a very different way along the lines that you've explained? Well, not only could this be possible? I believe it's a societal imperative. We should be doing this. Governments should be allocating a much larger share of the national budget to addressing preventative measures. And if we have preventative measures, uh, in the short term, it may cost more money, but in the long term, it will be a much better society by almost every single metric. So politicians should get involved. It's actually a consequence of past pandemics that governments have uh, shown more interest in the allocation of public health. 
that's not a bad thing. Many of the great progress of uh, better lifespans, which we talked about earlier, many of them were driven by public health initiatives, including vaccinations, including uh, pasteurization of milk, including uh, sanitization of dirty water. By some measures, that had an even bigger effect on lifespan than some of the more famous uh, medical treatments. So let's have more enlightened public health. I don't want this to be driven. I think, I think you kind of touched on some aspects of, uh, of, of my last question, but some of the things that we've spoken about feels like a group of technologies that potentially challenge our traditional no notions of, of being human. But then again, some of them are actually developments and a continuation of trends that we've already seen for years as we seek to lengthen our lives. So, so how, how do you see that starting to progress? How would you describe what we're seeing right now um, as it relates to increasing therapies around aging? You're quite right. It's human nature to want to go beyond our human nature. That sounds a bit daft, but if you think about it, you know, we've yeah. always looked for ways to, quote, play God, not to just lie down and passively, uh, passively in front of whatever slings and sorrows nature throws at us. We have said, oh, there's malaria here. Let's uh, do what we can to stop people having malaria. People are growing up crippled with polio. No, we don't accept that. You know, we found ways to deal with that. So this is a human instinct to give ourselves better health. But what's different in the present time is the possibility that it won't just be a few more months of healthy living for every year that we live. There is the possibility of reaching what some people call the longevity escape velocity, which is that every 12 months that we live, our expected future lifespan will grow by more than 12 months. And so we'll finally escape the downwards pool of entropy because we'll be making so many improvements so quickly. So there is the possibility that somebody who is, I don't know, somebody who's reasonably healthy today in their 80s, if they live in a healthy way, if they take advantage of some of the treatments are, that are already available, they may remain healthy for another 15 or so years, by which time there'll be yet more treatments available. And so some of these people who are healthy in their 80s today might still be alive in 100 years time, healthy as 180 year olds. We might be on the point of the last mortal generation I hesitate to use the word immortal, but we might become, uh, we might see the start of the first ageless generation. People who no longer actually look older or actually become older internally, people who have the same vitality. And that poses many philosophical and social questions, but these are problems that are good to have. There are far better problems to have than the very savage uh, downward spiral of health, which is the fate of ever be alive currently. I think that's a wonderfully optimistic note to leave it on. Uh, David, thank you so much for your time. It's an absolutely fascinating debate and one that hopefully we'll hear more, hear more of in the coming months and years. David, tell us how people can uh, contact you or follow you, get in touch with you to learn more about uh, what you do. I advise people to Google London Futurists, where you'll find about the series of events that I put on to try and share visions of a better future, as well as how to avoid the terrible risks of a very bad futures, which are also possible. On Twitter, you can find me as DW2, that's just three characters, and I write my own blog, DW2 blog, occasionally. So I look forward to engaging people online and who knows, Steve, perhaps I'll come back onto this uh, very interesting mini pod of yours to discuss some other topics in the months ahead.
that would be great. David, thank you so much for your time. And uh, thank you everyone for listening. Do let your friends and colleagues know about the Informing Choices mini pod and I'll see you again soon.